We're in the book of Ruth tonight. We will be in the book of Ruth, I imagine, for at least ten weeks. Anybody ever heard a sermon from Ruth before? Apparently four of you have. Okay. The biblical book Ruth derives its name from one of the three main characters in the story, Ruth. Her name appears 12 times in this story. Outside of this story, her name appears but once in Matthew 1.5 in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Spoiler alert. Ruth will be Jesus' great, 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 lots of greats grandmother. The fact that this book is named after Ruth is truly remarkable. Because Ruth was not even an Israelite. She was a Moabite. A fact that both the narrator and one of the other main characters, Boaz, emphasize multiple times throughout this story as she is referenced as Ruth the Moabitess. It is the only book within the Old Testament that is named after a non-Israelite. Only book in the entire Old Testament that's named after someone who's not an Israelite and not ethnically Jewish. Of the 85 verses in the book of Ruth, no fewer than 55 of them contain dialogue between characters. At many points in this story, it's going to feel like a screenplay or a script. Conversation happening between characters. As far as the, as far as the author is concerned, we, we just don't know who wrote this book. We, we do not know who wrote this book, but we do know around the time it was written. And that would, I, I'm going to place the, the date of writing somewhere around 1010 BC or after. And I say 1010 BC as the earliest possible date because at the end of Ruth it acknowledges the Davidic genealogy, which means David must have been coronated as king in order to acknowledge such an, such an event. He was coronated as king in 1010 BC, which means the earliest this book could have been written would have been 1010 BC as well as uh, maybe up to 400 years later. However, the events that occur in this book happen at least 100 years earlier, at least 100 years before David is coronated as king in 1010 B.C. The book opens up in verse 1. It says, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. In the days when the judges ruled, the story is taking place during the time of the judges. This is pre-Israelite monarchy. There are no kings. No King Saul hasn't shown up yet. Obviously no King David, no King Solomon. This is the time of the judges. It's a very dark time. Very dark, very ruthless time in the history of the Jewish people. In the days when the judges ruled... There was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. Now, the narrator doesn't tell us why there's a famine, simply that there is a famine. However, when Scripture typically mentions a famine... More often than not, it is a result of God's judgment 
honest people. Theologically, this can be explained by way of Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28, where God's people are warned that if they go after other gods, that if they persist in rebellion and unrepentant sin, they would face consequences. They would face God's judgment, including the cutting off of rains for the crops, sending famine. Scripture is silent as far as the reason this famine is here. But I'm going to argue that it's probably as a result of God's judgment on his people. And the reason, another reason, is because the main character here decides to go to Moab. Do we have that map? Do we have a map? Okay, there's Moab. There's Bethlehem on the left. Moab's here. At one point, it's 50 miles across. Okay, this is like saying times are tough in Lynchburg. Hasn't rained in a year. But down the road in Roanoke, it's great. Business as usual. Seems strange that Israel is in a famine, and yet Moab, some 50 miles away, apparently there's food there. The main character, Elimelech, making the decision to move his family to Moab. Evidently, there's food there. I think more reason to understand that not only plausible, but very possible, but the reason this famine has come is because of sin, is because of rebellion. Put the, the verse back up there. People often ask me, if I'm going through something really, really difficult, do you think you know, something happened to me? Do you think that's God's judgment in my life? This situation happened? You think that's God's judgment in my, you know, in my life? Is this a consequence? I tell them I don't know. Clearly not in every instance. It is. We have the story of Job to argue the opposite way. But I also wouldn't necessarily rule it out at the same time. It may or it may not be. I don't know. So in those moments, I said, check your heart. How are things with you and the Lord? If there's something you need to repent of, repent. Get, get right with the Lord. And so, the man Elimelech makes a decision to sojourn, to move his family, verse 1, to sojourn in the country of Moab. Uh, the word to sojourn, it, it kind of reveals to us that his plan is not to live there permanently, but to live there long enough to wait out the famine, to wait out the famine in Bethlehem. Which, Bethlehem, Bethlehem, it, it means house of bread. There's, there's a lot of irony that you'll see throughout the book of Ruth. This is like saying that there was no food at the Wonder Bread you know, factory. Like they, they had no, like there's no food in Bethlehem, which is the house of bread. And so the decision is made to move his family to Moab. That's the first verse. We're gonna, we're gonna, there's no food here. We've got to have food to eat, so we'll go to Moab. They've got food, apparently. We'll go there. You have to understand about Moab, or 
couple things. The Israelites did not have a very good view of the Moabites. They viewed them as, what's the word I'm looking for? Kind of slutty. Yeah, kind of slutty. It's true. And this goes back to, all the way back to Genesis chapter 19, verses 30 to 38, and even before then, when, when Abraham prays on behalf of his nephew Lot that Sodom and Gomorrah might be saved, you may know the story, I'll paraphrase it, God sends his angels, they go into the city, they get Lot, they get his wife, they get his two daughters, they bring them out on the way, uh, Lot's wife turns back, she's turned to a pillar of salt. Now, not just that she, she turned back, but... The original language is used is she, she turned back, she looked back, she, she longed back. She longed. Sometimes people are like, why did she get turned to salt? She just looked back? No, no, it was that she looked back and she longed back. She, she really loved Sodom and Gomorrah. She, she really missed her old way of life. We fast forward, Genesis chapter 19, verse 30 to 38. I'll paraphrase that story for the sake of time. But essentially, Lot is living in a cave with his two daughters. Listen, you might have a rough situation with your roommates. At the end of the day, you're not living in a cave. He's living in a cave with his two daughters, and his two daughters are, well, they're really worried. Okay, They're, they're, they're having thoughts like, well, you know, am I ever going to meet a guy? I'm so lonely. I feel like I'm going to be single my whole life. I'm never going to have kids. I, I read a statistic the other day that, that women statistically are more afraid of being fat and lonely their whole life than nuclear holocaust. <laughs> they all, <laughs> right? People laugh. I always say there's a little truth to every joke. And apparently, apparently things haven't necessarily shifted all that much. And so they're living in a cave in Genesis 19, 30 to 38. Lot and his two daughters, and his two daughters come up with this plan, right? They're worried I'm going to be single, I'm going to be lonely, we're never going to meet a guy, never going to have kids. So they come up with this plan, right? And as far as plans go, it's probably one of the worst ever. And their plan is to get their dad totally lit. I mean, I mean, to get him rocked, drunk, off his butt, and then have sex with him so they get pregnant. So at least they get to have kids. Like I said, a lot of different plans, a lot of different bad plans mentioned in the Bible. Probably without any debate, the worst ever, if not the grossest. Daughter comes up with, and she gets her little sister to go along with it, and they do that. The oldest daughter gets impregnated by her father Lot, gives birth to a son. His name is Moab. And he will be the father of the Moabites. Remember, I, I wasn't I wasn't joking when I said they have a kind of a slutty view toward them. This goes all the way back to, to, to Lot in Genesis chapter 19. Not only that, I'll give you one more reason why, why the Israelites don't exactly view the Moabites with much respect at all. And there, there's a lot of reasons, just for the sake of time, I'll give you one more story. When the people of Israel are coming out of Egypt after 400 years of slavery, this is recorded, I'm paraphrasing the story from Numbers 22 to 24, they're coming out, they ask, can we pass through Moab? They're trying to get to the promised land. And the Moabites say, no, you cannot pass through. They're worried, they're intimidated. There's lots of Israelites out there, they say no. And they're saying, all we want to do is just pass through. They say no. And then they decide to hire this prophet, this prophet for hire, Named Balaam. You may remember he had a talking donkey. That's the guy. They hire him to curse the Israelites. He goes to curse them. The only thing that comes out of his mouth are blessings on the Israelites. So there's lots of uh, past, not so good things between the Moabites and the Israelites. And yet, Elimelech makes the decision to move his family to Moab. From Bethlehem, the house of bread. Which has no bread. Which has no food. And times are tough. 
He makes the decision to move his family. Verse 2. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. Pause. Limelech, his wife, and their two boys. They make the move. His two boys, Malon and Kilion, their, their names, they sound like cool names. They're, don't name your kids Malon and Kilion. Uh, Malon and Kilion literally means like sickness and dying. It's like, it's like naming your boys like smallpox and influenza. <laughs> it might sound cool. It's, it's not... It's not as cool as you think it is. And so, he's moving his whole family. This this man, Elimelech, whose name actually means, my God is king. His name means, my God is king. They're they're Ephrathites. That that is, it was the old term given to those from the Bethlehem region. So they're ethnically from Bethlehem. You may remember there's there's another Bible character from Bethlehem. pretty, pretty, Pretty important guy, born in a manger. Okay? So they're from Bethlehem, same place that the Jesus was born. Makes the decision to sojourn, to go, to wait out the famine there. And as I said earlier, the narrator doesn't really tell us at this point whether this was an act of faith on the part of Elimelech, or whether it was an act of unbelief. I'm going to argue it was an act of unbelief. Maybe it wasn't, and I'm wrong. Wouldn't be the first time, but I'm going to argue that that this was an act of of unbelief. He makes the decision to move his family, and he's in a tough spot, okay? His back's against the wall. There's pressure on him. People are probably dying. They don't have food. He's worried about his family. But sometimes, it's easy to get so focused that you have tunnel vision, that you don't think about the ramifications of your decisions. And guys, here's a, I think we see an example with Elimelech of a man, a man who is responsible for his family, the decisions that he makes, the decisions that he makes for his family will affect his family, for better or for worse. And we see a man make some decisions here that I don't think are very good decisions. He makes a decision to move his family from Bethlehem to Moab. At first glance, it might not seem like a big deal. That's where they have food. I'm going to go there. But understand that the Moabites, they don't love God. They don't worship God. They worship other gods. Their chief god, Chemosh. So he makes the decision to move the family there. He doesn't think about some other things. Who are my boys going to marry? There's no godly women there. Who's going to be friends with my wife? There's no women who love the Lord there. Okay? He makes a decision to move his family, take them away from everything they know to move them to this place. I mean, he's, he's thinking loaves of bread, dollar signs, whatever it is. He's just, we've got to get there. Guys, the decisions that you make one day for your family, they have implications. For your wife, who is she going to be friends with? For your daughters or your sons, who are they going to marry? This, you, you make the decision to move your family somewhere. Like, 
Where? Are there, is there going to be somewhere you can be a part of a, of a church of the people of God? In this case, no. They're most likely probably the only believers of the one true God here in Moab. This is a big decision. At first glance, it doesn't seem like a big deal, but when you, you weigh in all the other factors, maybe it's not so cut and dry at this point anymore. And he makes this decision to move his family. And uh, what we don't see is this. We don't see Elimelech asking God for wisdom. We don't see Elimelech begging for mercy for his family, for his nation. We don't see Elimelech repenting of sin. If he or someone else... There's, there's things to work out. We don't see that. You say, well, maybe he did and the narrator omitted it. Yeah, maybe, but it kind of seems like a really big detail for the narrator to omit had it happened. Instead, I think what we see is we see a man who designs and engineers his own plan. I understand his back is against the wall. He's in a tough spot, but we see a man who engineers and designs his own plan. He doesn't rely on God. He relies on his own ingenuity. He relies on his own self-reliance. He relies on his own resourcefulness. And then this is very permeated in our culture, right? You fall down, you pull yourselves up by the bootstraps. You find yourself in a jam, well, you just work harder. You come up with a plan to get out of the jam. That's just the American, you can do it, mentality. And oftentimes it permeates our churches. And we don't acknowledge God. We say, hey God, you take a seat over there. And if I need your help, I'll let you know. I got this. I'll work this out. Oh, but have you not heard that it was said to trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding? It's not wrong to come up with a plan. I'm in the army. We come up with plans all the time. We come up with plans and then backup plans and then backup plans to the backup plans. Not wrong to come up with a plan. It becomes, I think, raw when you rely upon yourself. You call it arrogance. You call it pride. See, what's omitted from this story, which I think is really significant, is where is the point when Elimelech is brought to his knees, when he is humbled before the God and creator of the world to say, I need you. Please help. Because if you don't, we're not going to make it. Where's that guy? Where's that guy? It, it seems that Elimelech has forgotten what his name means. Elimelech. Elimelech. His name means, my God is king! My God is king! And it seems that he's forgotten what his, what his name actually means. See, he's in a tough position, I understand that. But how we respond in those, those difficulties matters. I'm thinking in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 right now. Paul's going through a very difficult time. We don't know what it is. He says, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. 
My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness, Paul. Paul goes on to say, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Like Paul had this figured out, like when I'm at my weakest point, when I have my back like a limo, like against the wall, and I'm out of answers. What do I do? And it's at that point when I'm actually strongest, when I'm least relying upon myself, on my own human, ingenu- human ingenuity, on my own resourcefulness, on my own self-sufficiency. It's at that point, man, I'm actually strongest when I'm weakest because God, man, he is having the God show. He, the spotlight is on him. See, it's not wrong to come up with a plan. It's wrong when you're only trusting yourself. In those situations when you find your back against the wall. See, it doesn't glorify God. People know you're going through something hard and they see you. Say, yeah, going through something really tough, but I realized there was food in Moab, so duh, just moved my family to Moab. Oh, Elimelech, you're so wise. Versus this. We were in a tough situation. I had my back against the wall, and I did the only thing I knew to do. I called on God. I begged God for mercy. And if it wasn't for Him and His goodness and His grace, I would not be here today. I wouldn't have made it day after day, week after week. I wouldn't have survived. There was a famine if it wasn't for Him. Oh, Elimelech, have you forgotten what your name means? My God is King! He is! He's a big God, bigger than you may think or even realize. And so many of us, we think that He's a small God. No, you're small. Oh, that you might have a small and humble view of yourself and a big, magnificent view of the Creator, the God King. So yeah, I don't think it was an act of faith on the part of Elimelech. We go to verse 3. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. Why did Elimelech move to Moab? Was it not so they could live and survive? The whole reason, the whole rationale, we're going to move to Moab is because we're starving. We're going to die if we stay here. He moves, and what happens? He dies. Moral of the story, God alone holds life and death in his hands. I'm like, you don't. It doesn't matter how resourceful you are. It doesn't matter how smart you are. It doesn't matter how many plans or backup plans you have. It doesn't matter. God alone holds life and death in his hands. Tragic. So Naomi buries her husband. But all hope is not yet lost. In that culture, she had two sons. They would have, they would have taken care of her. <clears throat> and then in verse 4, we see the implications of one man's decision. Verse 4, These, <clears throat> they took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about ten years. <clears throat> Men one day 
You'll be married. Some of you guys are married. The decisions that you make for your, your family have implications. Who's your wife going to be friends with? Are you going to be a part of a church? If, if so, where? Who, who will your, your children fall in love with and marry someday? The decisions you make have implications beyond just yourself. And we see like ripples in a pond. One man's decision to move his family. And now his boys are getting involved with women they have no business getting involved with. No business. Now strictly speaking, according to Deuteronomy 7, Moabite women aren't technically prohibited from from marrying, but it's highly looked down upon because they don't love God. Okay, they don't, they don't love God. They worship Kimosh. And they make the decision to, 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 to marry these women. I, you know, maybe you have friends in this situation. Maybe you're in this situation, right? So well, I'm not, not dating anyone or know anyone dating Moabites or people worshiping other gods. I got you, but, but you know. Application, right? Dating someone who says they're a Christian. Should define that because that could mean anything. They say they love God. Is there evidence? They say they love His Word. Is there evidence? They say they love His people, the church. Is there evidence? When you're dating someone, you should be on your best behavior. I say that time and time again. Yet sometimes we think it'll work out, right? It'll get better. I, I don't know what's going through their minds. I mean, sometimes our sometimes guys, our minds can turn to mush really easily. I, I know it affects the, the ladies too. Makes me think of that scene from uh, the trailer. I've not seen the movie. Um, uh, Zoolander two. <laughs> Salma Hayek's character pulls up on a motorcycle. The music, just how the camera's looking, she's making it look very provocative. So there's 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 Ben Stiller. He's about here, and Owen Wilson here, and they see her. They see her pull up, and and Owen Wilson looks to Ben Stiller. Well, he doesn't even look. He just he doesn't really take his eyes off her, and he, and he says to <clears throat> Ben Stiller, he says, "She's hot. I trust her." <laughs> I don't know if that's what happened with Malon or Killian, but but regardless, this is this is very unwise. This is very foolish, and. I've never heard someone come at this, at this approach like this, and maybe I'm wrong. I don't think this is one of Naomi's finer moments. Naomi is, is very much set up as one of the positive characters in the story. I don't think this is one of her finer moments. Maybe she had this conversation. If she did, the narrator decided to omit it. I think it's pretty significant. She should have said, Boys, I love you, but you have no business marrying these women. They do not love God. Your father wanted to come here and wait for the famine to run out. Then we'll go back to Bethlehem. Then there'll be women we'll find for you. And you can marry women that love the Lord. Now, I don't know if she's thinking, well, maybe, you know, my boys have been through a lot. We just buried their dad. I don't want to ruffle any feathers because, you know, I'm kind of a people pleaser. Just want to keep everything nice and, uh, you know, status quo. I don't know what's going through her mind. But she should have, in my opinion, stalled these marriages. Said, well, you can get married. But not to these women. Not right now. Just wait, boys. I don't think this is one of her finer moments in the story on, on, on Naomi's part. I think she is a positive character overall. But this is not one of her, her finer moments. And then 
Verse 5, and both Malon and Kilion died so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. She just buried her boys. The story just gets so sad. She's burying her boys. She's buried her husband. Now she's burying her boys. What was the reason Elimelech made the decision to move to Moab? And now they're dead. They're all dead. She's left alone. We're five verses in. We've killed off three of the characters already. And this would make great TV, but tragic. Tragic. And now she's left alone. But even though she's alone, her God is still king. He's still on his throne. He's still calling the shots. Are you like Naomi? The people pleaser? I don't know if she is. Maybe that's unfair for me to say. But are you like her? Well, I don't want to say anything. I know I should say something in this situation because it's not right. But, you know, I don't want to be unloving. Sometimes the most loving thing you can do is to have a conversation. I got it. You can lead a horse to water, but you can't make it drink. But you can at least lead it to the water. Are you like her? Are you like Naomi? You're passive, at least in this instance, Pleasing everybody. Don't want to upset anyone. Are you like her? Are you like Elimelech? When you find yourself with your back against the wall, your first instinct isn't to be humbled before the God King, before the creator of the universe, to your knees begging and pleading for help to get you through this day, this situation, this circumstance, whatever it may be. Are you like Elimelech? Have you too forgotten That you're not all self-sufficient. That you don't have it all together. Have you forgotten, like Elimelech, that your God is king? A tragic story. One man makes a decision on behalf of his family that has serious implications beyond just food. I just imagine God saying, Elimelech, Elimelech, why, why don't you ask me for help? Why don't you ask me for mercy? Why don't you ask me for food, Elimelech? Have you forgotten what your name means, Elimelech? And Elimelech chooses to go it alone, by all respects. No, trust in the Lord, Solomon would say. Don't lean on your own understanding. It's not wrong to come up with a plan. It just becomes wrong when you exclusively rely upon your own human ingenuity and self-reliance. Don't forget him. For the God of Elimelech is the God of the church, and he is king. As the band comes, I'd like to pray. God, we love you because you are a good God, because as Elimelech name shouts out and proclaims, you are king. You are God. 
You're king when our back is against the wall and we're out of options, we're out of answers. You're king. You're king even when it seems like the nations are raging all around us. You're still king. Lord, I pray that the story would encourage us, that it would remind us of your greatness. You alone hold life and death in your hand. You alone change the times and the seasons, appoint rulers and kings and remove them. I pray that we would trust you, that we would not be like Elimelech, that we would think about the choices we make, the ramifications that they have. Please help us, Lord. Please help us, Jesus. For you and you alone, our King. Amen.